0: Dear eight-pound, six-ounce newborn baby Jesus in your golden fleece diapers with your curled-up, fat, balled-up little fists pawing at the air. This is the prayer of Will Ferrell in his now infamous scene, Talladega Nights. And, and those around the table uh, begin to share their own vision of Jesus. Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Ninja Jesus. Jesus with eagle's wings singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinnard. But Will Ferrell's character most of all loves to pray to baby Jesus. We're one more sleep away from Christmas, the day we've set apart to remember the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, but now we live in a culture where this narrative has been reduced to a mere myth, a construction tailored to each personal preference, just like we see in the movie Talladega Nights. And people have their own version of Jesus that they remember during this season. It might be the always happy, friendly, yet Uh, in an aloof sort of way, Jesus that is attached to this holiday season. It may be the Jesus you know isn't real, but brings you here anyway because you want to be respectful of your family. And it may even be curiosity. What is this Jesus in a manger all about? And for the season of Advent, our church uh, has been in the Gospel of Luke. And I want to remind us, especially if you're a guest of this morning, that Luke is a historian He's reporting facts. He's not fabricating fake news. Consider the introduction of his gospel with me. Many have undertaken to drawn up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So that you might have certainty about the things you've been taught. You see, Luke was commissioned by a skeptical Roman ruler to write a credible account about the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And after checking his sources, speaking with eyewitnesses, Luke is providing an investigative report. According to Luke, this is history, not fiction. And we can't make up our own version of Jesus then. Because Jesus is not a construction. Jesus of Nazareth is a person born within history. And so for Advent, we've been looking at how the historical account of Jesus being born into this world is filled with joy. Joy is all over the place in his birth narrative. And so today in our passage, joy now rises to the full. It peaks. Jesus is born. And this is the joy of heaven so there's one question I want to ask as we work through this text this morning, and it's this. Why is the birth of Jesus the joy of heaven? Why is the birth of Jesus the joy of heaven? If you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 2. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, please take one of the church Bibles home with you. Everything will also be on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. In the end. Caesar Augustus wanted the whole world to know that he was a big deal. Archaeologists have found an ancient inscription that reads, Divine Caesar Augustus, son of a God, supreme ruler of land and scene, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. And he published this himself. Very humble man. And our passage begins with Caesar Augustus issuing a decree. The whole world needs to be registered. And historians, they're not too sure what his intentions were here. It may have been twofold. First, he may be doing this to get a sense of accomplishment, a sense of power, the magnitude of the kingdom. Or he's doing it to get a headcount so they can better implement their tax regime. And this was hardly good news for the average person because often the taxes were more than they could bear. And it was into this cultural moment that Jesus was born. Jesus wasn't born into immense power where he would immediately rule over the world. He wasn't born into the privileged household of Caesar with innumerable subjects serving him. He was born into Mary's world. He shared her status and place, her humble estate. He was born amidst animals wrapped in in rags and put in the middle of a feeding trough in a room. And so while Caesar is tallying up his empire, Jesus is born among those being counted. He's found within the ordinary, not the extraordinary pretending to be God. Caesar, he's issuing a decree that the the whole world be numbered. But at the same time, the God of the universe issues his own decree, but to a much smaller audience. Look at verses 8 through 12. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. God sends angels into the world to proclaim his decree to shepherds. I recently became friends with a missionary in Morocco, and the country is predominantly Islamic, and he was telling me about a conversation he had had with some Muslim friends. They said, what do you Christians call your leaders? You know, imam, like what do you call them? He said, shepherds. And they laughed at him. They said, you can't possibly call your leaders shepherds. Why on earth would you call your leaders shepherds? You see, to them in their culture, shepherds are seen as dirty and insignificant. They're even despised. And this attitude, which persists in the Middle East today, found its origins in the ancient world. In the time of Jesus, shepherds were outcasts. They were outsiders. They were the lowest of the low. They were deprived of all civil rights. They couldn't even be admitted into court as a witness. And you didn't buy wool or milk or young animals from a shepherd because you assumed it was stolen. And in fact, in Jerusalem, during Jesus' day, the rabbis couldn't comprehend Psalm 23 because the psalmist calls God a shepherd and they couldn't understand why the psalmist would describe God as such a despicable metaphor. It's safe to say then, that Caesar didn't even have any interest in numbering the shepherds. They're of no significance to his empire. But the God of the universe makes his decree to shepherds. And this has been God's MO so far in Luke's gospel. God doesn't work through the best of the best or who we deem important in this world. Let's do a quick recap. There's Zachariah, an old man who is put on mute because of his unbelief. Elizabeth, a barren old woman, a condition that most people in that day saw as a curse. And of course, Mary. God will bring his son into the world through an innocent but believing young virgin, Mary. But this miracle immediately puts her on the outside of society and compromises her life because to have a child out of wedlock in that day could put you to death. Mary gets what God is doing. Mary sings of this strange reversal in her song in Luke. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. You see, we shouldn't be surprised at this point in the gospel that when God makes a decree, he speaks directly to society's rejects, the shepherds, Yes, from his throne, Caesar is numbering his subjects, but God is found among his subjects, among the least, among those without power, among those who have nothing to offer in terms of status or privilege, among those who aren't even worth being numbered. And that is precisely who God is interested in. Do you believe that? That as insignificant as you may feel, that makes you qualified in God's eyes. Now, at first, it may have seemed like any ordinary night to the shepherds. They were watching over their sheep, beginning to unwind. You know, they may have been gathered around a fire, sharing stories, looking up at the star, marveling at the beauty of the night. But this is not any ordinary night. And right away, we see that God's baby announcements trump our own. You know, we like to share adorable photos on Facebook, Instagram, whatever cute phrases. You know, welcome to earth. Meet Octavius Atlas, you know, born at 14 pounds. Uh, For any of you uh, expecting a baby, that name suggestion is on the house. You're welcome. Uh, But when God announces his son's arrival, heaven opens up. An angel appears, the glory of God, shone all around the shepherds, and they're enveloped in radiant light. And they're filled with great fear. Understandably so, this is how people always react in Scripture when they encounter the presence of God or one of His messengers. You see, nobody's ever expecting an angel to appear and manifest. I know it seems like this is happening all the time in Scripture, but we're just getting the highlights, the snapshots. This is not the norm. And when it happens, it's terrifying. Imagine if an angel showed up in the seat beside you right now. You would be totally disoriented. You'd be afraid. And if they made a decree like, I wouldn't have worn those shoes and disappeared, what would you be like, what? Why? No, what's wrong with my shoes? Don't they match my outfit? And you know, it would be disorienting. <laughs> the shepherds, they're afraid because they're in the presence of God and no human can truly stand in his presence. That's actually what's going on. And then the angel says in verse 10, fear not, fear not, fear not. Sometimes that is exactly what we need to hear. Sometimes that is all we need to hear, especially in a world full of fear and especially when we're standing in God's presence and wondering if he's for us. Fear not. The angel continues, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. You may not see it right away, but this is a politically charged decree. The angel brings good news, but this word good news in their time and place was Caesar's word. He was the one bringing good news to the world. In fact, Caesar himself was the good news. He was even called Savior and Lord of the world, as we saw. And he established his good news of peace through the means of war. And so it was good news as long as you submitted to the power of his sword. The angel of the Lord declares good news of great joy for all people. It's subversive. It's revolutionary. In some sense, it's rebellion against the status quo of their day. It's a challenge, a direct challenge to the empty gospel of Caesar, the empty good news of the world being changed by a political leader pretending to be God. And this good news begins with fear not. Fear not, because the good news of great joy is that the real Savior, the Messiah of Israel, the Lord of the universe, has arrived. God has put on flesh, and it's not a sham like Caesar. But this good news comes to us always in a world that's already proclaiming its own good news. This good news comes to us always in a world that already proclaims its own good news. Now, what's the good news in Vancouver at this moment of time, this moment of the year? Good news, it's Christmas. Buy presents. Shower your loved ones with presents. The bad news is that the average person leaves Christmas more in debt than they went into it. And the average person is still paying off debt from last year's Christmas too. Good news, the things you've wanted are on sale. The bad news is the true cost of the item. Because they're unethically sourced and made by laborers working in abject poverty. Good news, the city is opening more temporary homeless shelters so people don't freeze to death during the cold season. Bad news, it's in Marple, so you protest. Good news, you can be whoever you want to be in this city. The bad news is you have to be born into the right economic family to really take advantage of what this city offers. Good news, Vancouver is rated the top place to live in the whole world, or at least in the top three. The bad news is none of us can afford to live here. And perhaps, because it's never so cut and dry, we've grown skeptical of claims about good news. Is it ever really good news? Because there's always another side to it. It's good news for some, just like Caesar's good news and bad news for others. But the good news about the birth of Jesus is a different kind of news. It's not an announcement that comes from within the world or from a king or from a politician. It's announced by angels. It's news from heaven into earth. It's news decreed by God himself. And it's good news of great joy because a Savior has been born. God has kept his promises. A Savior who is Christ the Lord has appeared. And these three titles, this is the only time in the entire New Testament that they're put together and they're of great significance, Savior, Christ, and Lord. You see, Jesus is not a helper. He's not an assistant, a guru, or a sage. He's not merely a prophet or a leader. He's not an add-on or an option. He's not just a nice guy who taught some interesting things many, many years ago. Jesus is a Savior. Throughout the Old Testament, only God is described as a Savior. A Savior who rescues, a Savior who delivers, a Savior who brings salvation to a hurting, broken world that needs to be saved. And the Savior is also the Christ or the Messiah. And if you're not familiar with this language, here's what it means God has kept His promise. Long ago, God promised his people, Israel, an everlasting king with an everlasting throne. And this king would establish justice and goodness. He would set things right. He would cause peace to flow through the world like a river. This new king would remove all suffering. He would put an end to death. Tears would become non-existent in this king's kingdom. But this king, this Messiah, is not just the king of Israel, it turns out. He's also the Lord who reigns over the entire universe. And so he alone has the power to actually follow through on his promise to create a new heavens and a new earth, to create a world where everything is new and set right. You see, the only way any of this is possible for Christ to be Savior, Christ, and Lord is if Jesus is God himself. And that's precisely who he is. And this news will only be good to the extent that you see that this world needs to be rescued, that this world needs to be delivered and saved, that this world is in desperate need of a do-over. Look, I know we made a pretty bleak creative offering video there sharing some of the underbelly statistics of Christmas, but that is part of this season. I don't want to undermine all the good that happens in this season too, because a lot of beauty does happen. But there's a lot of darkness in this world amidst our celebrating. And we don't eradicate it simply by throwing another festival. This world needs to be rescued. You see, this will only be good news of great joy to the extent that you acknowledge that you can't save yourself. You can't rescue yourself. And no empty promise from any leader or nation is ever going to do it. We need a savior, which means we need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And the good news of great joy is that the world has received this savior who keeps his promises and who has the power to actually remake the entire world. And as the angel announces this decree, all the angels in heaven can't help but join in the party. I love this. Verse 13 and 14. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom He's pleased. The angels can't help but worship. When they proclaim this good news, a party busts out. They sing, they praise God, they give glory. The news is so good that we see that God's ultimate aim in this world is joy, is rejoicing, is celebrating. Because a new kind of life is broken into the world, finally. A new kind of life is born in that manger. Eternal life. The life of God himself. The angels rejoice because they've been looking at this creation and wondering what God's going to do with it. The ambivalence of it all. Its beauty, its brokenness, its love and its hatred, its war and its peace. And they've looked at it for years and eons and said, what is God going to do with this world? And then God appears in the world and becomes a human to rescue a world bound by darkness, suffering, injustice, evil, and sin. And so they rejoice because God has surprised even the angels in how he's going to make things right. And now the shepherds, The shepherds who've been outsiders their whole life. The shepherds who have nothing to do with society. The shepherds who aren't even worth being counted. The shepherds are on the inside track of the true story of the world. We read in verses 15 through 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The presence of this little baby evokes different reactions. We see this. Some wonder. Mary ponders. The shepherds leave and, like angels, they glorify and praise God. And what's particularly beautiful to me is the poetic justice of this. Ostracized shepherds are among the first to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How beautiful is that? If you see that this child is the one who will put your sins away from you as far as the east is from the west. If you see that this child is the one who can make you white as snow, even though your sins were bright as scarlet. If you see that this child brings about the promise that God himself will not remember your sins. If you see that this is the child who will make all things new. Of course you worship. What a gift. What a gift. The historian and New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, gets to the heart of what's happening here. He writes, when we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship him. Not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet really understood who he is or what he's done. But after all is said is done, the shepherds return to living their lives. This is only the beginning. Jesus still has to grow up. It's going to be 30-some years before he even begins his public ministry. For the shepherds, life goes on as usual. So what did beholding this promise in the midst of their world really change? In 2006, the movie Children of Men was released. Anyone see that movie, Children of Men? The film, for those of you who didn't see it, takes place in 2027, where two decades of human infertility have left society on the brink of collapse. Dystopian future kind of stuff, if you're into it. And things are quickly unraveling. Violence is escalating. War is ravaging humanity as impending extinction causes this deep existential angst and despair. All appears to be lost. But then... A child is unexpectedly born to a refugee uh, mother and, and one of the most powerful scenes is toward the end of the movie. The lead character is escorting her through this war zone and people are seeing a baby for the first time and the fighting stops. People are in awe and they praise. And the world stands still. But then the fighting continues. The violence resumes. In the same way, we can look at what took place two millennia ago. And for a moment, for a moment, we can stand still and we can wonder and we can have awe, God, in the form of a helpless babe, the savior of the world, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal justice and peace. The world stands still for a moment, but then it continues moving. The world has continued on. It's not not surprising that some people have asked, what did this birth change? How does the birth of Jesus bring us joy in a violent, exploitive, and abusive world? How does the birth of Jesus bring us joy in a nation, in a city, in a global age that has its own good news, news that is good for some and not for many? Brings us joy the same way it originally did, the same way it always has. These are the exact conditions of the world that Jesus came into. The tension we feel in this world is the same tension that existed then. This is the world he came in to redeem and save. You see, the joy of heaven is this. God became vulnerable, knowable in weakness. He became one of us. He didn't set the world right with the sword or by his power. It showed his power and weakness and came among us to do what was necessary to set the world right again. You see, the joy of heaven is that God is with us, that God is for us. The joy of heaven is that this good news isn't just for a select few, it's for all people. It's for the lowly, for the shepherds, as much as it is for the kings and the rulers, it's for the rich and the poor, the weak and the powerless. It's to anyone and everyone who will humble themselves, kneel down, and recognize Jesus for who he is the Savior, Christ the Lord, who has come and who will come again. And this joy is for you. The life of the world lies quietly in that manger. You can't earn this gift that has come into the world because that's precisely what it is. It's a gift. It's offered to us. A gift for anyone and everyone who desires it. And the gift is eternal life. And if you receive it, it'll start changing your life now and not just in the future. And if you see him, you might feel awe. You might wonder Over this baby. It might lead you to praise and glory, but we must all become like Mary in this text. Treasure this gift of joy in your heart and contemplate the depths of its beauty and then you'll begin to see what a difference Jesus makes in the here and now as we continue to live in a world that is still crying out for its Savior. Jesus, the Christ and Lord of in Bethlehem, the Savior of the world, The only good news of great joy. The joy of heaven, the joy of the world. The Savior has come and the Savior will return. So come Lord Jesus.